Hi, and welcome to Rule of Carnage. Uh, I'm Glenn Ford, and I'm here talking to Mike Hutchinson about designing better miniature games. Uh, today, we're going to talk about scenarios. It's something that we've mentioned quite a few times in other videos about the fact that one of the first things you should write should be a scenario. So we figured it's about time we talked about what a scenario is, explaining why it is that we think it's important you write it, first of all, talk about the elements that make a scenario up, the elements that make up a good scenario, as opposed to just a scenario anyway. So we'll try and get through some of those technical bits and pieces in, um, in the first part. And then in the second part, we'll maybe try and talk a little bit about some, uh, some more unusual scenarios, what goes into a narrative scenario as opposed to a competitive one, a solo scenario, campaign scenarios, maybe talk a bit about why scenarios aren't as well or as heavily played as they maybe deserve to or at least don't get played as much as um, as much as the weight of, of of attention some of them get anyway. But we'll we'll get to that later on. For now, uh, what is a scenario? I think a, a quick definition is that most games come with a let's call it a standard play mode, which tends to be one or another variation on a bunch of dudes line up on two sides of the table, run forward and kick seven bells out of each other scenarios are anything that alters that story is that a good thumbnail description of a scenario mike i see you pensively considering that yeah it's really interesting i suppose for me uh to offer an alternative definition i think the scenario is the setup instructions and the victory condition instructions and everything in between is the core gameplay mechanics rather than that because i think what you've described is the default assumed scenario and then there's the variations which are scenarios as in more ways to play hmm. i mean we'll get onto that maybe later on because you ironically don't write things with a, with a default play mode but um <laughs> i what I suppose one thing to to sort of to start off mentioning is, like I say, a few times we've suggested that a great place to start when writing mm. anything to do with skirmish games is writing your own scenario. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about this actually the other day, and it's it's slightly ironic because when you're writing your own game system, pretty much the last thing you write for your game system is, is are the scenarios. Can be. Um, tend to get most of the mechanics in play, even the units, and then once you've got them all rolling for for whatever the main play mode is you start sort of tweaking the scenarios but i think that's why they're such a good thing for budding writers to start with because what you tend to get in game systems are layers of rules you, you start with sort of anchor rules and then rules that are built on top of those and rules that are built on top of those and so on up and because scenarios tend to be one of the last creamy layers of the trifle of rules building rather than your biscuity or cakey foundation. If you just pull a scenario off the off the top of the game and and wrench it to pieces and pull bits out of it or just dump your own scenario on top, there's very little damage you can really do to the to the playground by doing that. Yeah, Whereas if you if you go in and you rewrite even an army list or or a weapon or or a character, they tend to integrate with each other in a in a more crunchy way. And if you go in and rewrite a rule, you're potentially just just wrenching the foundations out from the building without really understanding it. Do you think that's a a, a fair sort of description as to why it's such a a good starting point for budding designers, budding writers? Absolutely, yeah. Although. 
although with a caveat that you should write a scenario that affects all the players equally. So we'll talk about narrative scenarios and asymmetrical scenarios, I guess, a bit later. But for me, one really early place that I, I found a lot of enjoyment was writing scenarios where there was some froth added on top. There was some fun, random stuff um, that was added on top, or there was just like different setup rules or different simple mechanical elements were added in. And, and exactly as you say, I think the, the best thing about that is that you can alter how a rule system operates, but in quite a non-damaging way. You can see whether by sort of twisting it left or twisting it right, you can find a different play experience. You're not really changing the core engine of the rule system. And so, so yeah, I, I think the scenarios are a fantastic way of um, doing a bit of early games design and trying to get a game experience, a play experience that you want, but without having to worry about the entire functioning mechanics of a fresh game engine, which, you know, honestly, you know, you don't always need a fresh game engine anyway. I sometimes wonder why I write a fresh one each time. Yeah, I think that there are some technical things that probably go into a scenario. We'll maybe talk a bit about those. And there are maybe some things that go into a, a good scenario. And hopefully we'll, we'll sort of talk about those um, a little while later first of all just literally what goes into a scenario i mean i i almost i almost have like the headers just like memorized at this point it's just like <laughs> what's the what's the little bit of flavor text that describes what's going on what's the setup rules that might include the deployment rules what special rules happen as a part of the scenario uh what is the end condition and then what's the victory conditions and sometimes you yep. mix those things up because they're in different places but it's basically how do you get set up what happens during the game when does the game end and who wins that's the four yeah. things you need the one thing that i would sort of add on to that that you might sometimes see in a scenario is a uh, special force selection rules if they pop up so I was thinking about some about some sort of classic scenarios. For example, starting from the top there, force selection rules. There's a classic sort of setup scenario in the old Warhammer rule books, which is a sort of seven against Thebes version of play where one side only gets heroes, gets exactly mm. seven heroes, and they're allowed to carry as much as they like. And that's a great example of where basically one section of rules just in the, in the little setup section writes a whole story a whole a whole world for you and, and you then there's very little else that needs to be done for that particular scenario you might tweak other things about force selection rules so for example if you're having a game um it involves an ambushing section, a set-aside part of the force that comes in from the side of the table, which might be quite popular. You might want to put conditions on things like scouts, or it's usually units that have weird setup rules within the main game that you sometimes want to put a few little controls on in the, in the sort of force selection uh, section. Well, I think one of the conditions that makes a good scenario is that it should be accessible at the table by players, as in you shouldn't have to pre-study the scenario. We might talk about that a little bit later, but there's nothing more more annoying than having a, a pre-selected list or army getting to the table, being given the scenario and going, well, half of my army is kind of moot now because I bought an ambushing army and this scenario makes half of everybody's army ambush. I paid points for my ambushing and you're getting it free so yeah, yeah kind of yeah, garbage totally. um, maybe, so, maybe that maybe that actually maybe what we're maybe what we're describing here is there are actually kind of two scenario blocks here one is something that makes an exciting emergent game experience regardless of force selection and one that is inspiring some kind of hobby challenge or some kind hmm. of specifically like reconsider units you previously discarded kind of a, a switch it up 
because yeah, yeah. in in Gaslands you've got scenarios like Truckosaurus or mm. or even the or even the big game hunter where you need to bring to the table a bunch some models that you wouldn't normally bother. But if you say, mm. oh, in two weeks' time, let's play Truckosaurus, and one person goes, yeah, I'll put my hand up and I'll build a Truckosaurus, like that's a fun hobby challenge. But if you're just yeah. sitting there and you turn up with your game cases out the back of your car and you roll up a scenario, it goes, all right, you need to build an entire space station like modular board. You're like, well, I don't. I can't. We, yeah. All right, roll again. Oh, no, totally. And I, and I think that's part of where eventually we'll end up talking about narrative scenarios to some degree. And I think that um, I think seven against the, the sort of seven against Thebes scenario is is a great example of a narrative scenario where nobody is rolling up with just seven heroes in their in their army case, going. I assume I'm going to be playing that scenario for my pickup game at club this week. But when you read it in that Warhammer rulebook. And it's so mad and it's so out. You go, oh, one, one week, I want to organize somebody and play that. I want to have mm. my seven Bretonian knights stood and seeing the hordes rushing towards them. They are going to be so badass. They're going to be like the A team out on the field of battle there. And so I think uh, for selection rules, it is a thing that can make up certain scenarios. It's a very spicy meatball to throw at somebody for a scenario that might well be a pickup game. And if you are going to toss it in there, if it's if it's not going to be going to be very forgiving, be very careful about how you, how you put things. And then, as he said, of the, of the standard parts that make up a scenario, the next obvious one. Once you've got your forces, the, the setup rules. I think one of the, the classic examples of that, uh, the Rourke's Drift style scenario where you've got a, a group in the middle of the table and they're being assaulted on all sides. Mm -hmm. um, that That's one of the sort of the more popular uh, versions of a weird setup rule or somebody being ambushed as they, as they march along in a column. So you've got uh, one group that might have to set up on opposite table edges and then another group who who get to sit up on the flank table edges they said the general special rule elements that make up a scenario the the weird things that are going on there's monsters bursting out of the ground there's fiery rain coming down the victory conditions and the end conditions which aren't necessarily the same thing all of the time it's surprisingly important to ensure that scenario, your scenario has robustly and clearly triggered end conditions because unfortunately there are a peculiar number of scenarios that end up technically and if you played them a certain way never ending and certainly a lot that end up having no clear winners and no clear victory conditions at the end of them i think the special rules are the place that you can add salad dressing mm. like that's that's the place where your imagination and your storytelling really like takes form. I think that mm. the special rules are a place that it's quite a playground. That's a really, really fun place to mess about with. And particularly when you're writing scenarios for a game that you're familiar with, you can introduce terrain rules where they're not supposed to be. You can add modifiers. You can do all kinds of things. You can have random tables of stuff being generated. There's just a ton of cool things that you can put in that just change what's happening during the, the, the turn. And then I think that the, the victory conditions are absolutely the critical thing. And when I'm approaching a new game, like writing the first scenario, it almost always comes down to what's the victory conditions. Because having written a, a system that I'm excited by, nothing will more quickly bring that system to its knees than a poorly written victory condition. And mm. quite often writing the victory conditions and getting them right will make me reconsider almost every part of my game's design up to that point. 
And it seems ridiculous, mm. but it is actually genuinely true because the victory conditions are asking a question of like, what, what is the important game state that you're trying to reach? And then mm. if it's exciting to get to that game state and if it's tense and if it's well contested to get to that game state, you have a game. And if the game state is trivial to reach or tedious to reach or takes too long to reach, then you don't have a game, regardless of how enjoyable the mechanics of operating the, the game pieces are. The victory mm. conditions are just like the thing that makes the whole dish come together. And without good ones, it's 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 just boring or tedious. Or... Well, I think that the thing is that the victory conditions are what you as a games designer are telling the players they should be doing. This is you saying this is this is what you should be trying to achieve. And then hopefully somewhere in your game, there is the thing that is fun to set about doing. And if those two things aren't generally the same process, if the thing that you're telling them that they have to do to win isn't also the thing that you've made enjoyable for them to do, mm. you've just created one of the most unpleasant tabletop experiences. I, for one, I think you you, you can sort of go through. It's like there have been game systems that I, that I won't mention where we've played, I've gone in, crushingly won the game, snuck in, scalped out all of the victory points, not taken a wound, flipped out again. And meanwhile, you and other people are laughing uproariously as you deeply enjoy horribly losing the scenario. <laughs> and after that, and it's like, no, but I was doing what I was, what I was meant to be. Obviously, that was what I was meant to be doing. That's what the game system was built to ask me to do. Why was it like accountancy in a world of grey sludge? I completely crushed it. And now what's even worse is it's a campaign system. And part of my reason for crushing in that is that I get to buy all the fun toys for the next game that you're not going to play because you got crushed during the first scenario having so, fun. So, so this, this is this is a really interesting and problematic thing with uh, A Billion Suns, actually, which is... If you approach Billion Suns with the perfectly legitimate sort of understanding that this is a game where you shoot spaceships and spaceships explode and then you shoot some more spaceships and more spaceships explode, because that's literally the picture on the front of the book, is that <laughs> there's a bunch of exploding spaceships. And then you analyze the victory conditions and you go, hmm, okay, so I need to spend some, I need to send some space trucks in and the space trucks need to do some space trucking, and I might need some guys to stop my space trucks from getting held up at the border. It's one of the reasons that people are asking me so often for the war zone scenarios, the scenarios where everything is about just killing everything, because mm. they come in with an expectation that this is an exploding, um, shooting things up game, which it, which it is to a degree, but when you analyze mm. the victory conditions in a really kind of clear-sighted way, you go, oh, okay, the game is not actually about killing. Killing might be part of why on the emerging table states that it becomes the right choice to do. But ultimately, I haven't been told, you've got 200 men, I've got 200 men, the fewest men remaining will lose. I agree with you. One of the things I always feel about games which give you victory by virtue of you killing another model or another participant you know on the table and it's something i think I've, I've mentioned before to you when we've been designing things is that i always think that it's like double dipping if i kill your guys i'm going to achieve whatever it is i want to achieve because there's going to be nobody to stop me and i'll tool around the table picking up all the all the lovely pennies and blowing up the buildings whatever it was i was trying to do because you guys are all just moldering corpses and so i can do whatever i want so a game that says you get 
directly rewarded for killing people, that, that's sort of a overly underlined part of part of the victory conditions. Any game that says do anything is a game where you get rewarded for killing the other people. I think that's why, and this might be bleeding into the second half of the conversation, but I think that's why scenarios that are more fiddly in inverted commas than just blow the other guy to pieces become quite problematic because if the system and the expectation of the scenarios in those systems is blow the other guy up then you can't really introduce as you say you can't really introduce a and complete objective because complete objective is easier if you're blowing seven bells so always blow seven bells possibly engage with scenario but that's always a secondary concern it's where you're actually asking someone to actually think in a strategic and tactical manner rather than just come to table employ pre-built engine to do what pre-built engine does push lawnmower across table look at devastation left by lawnmowers passing pat yourself on back and walk away that those some of those victory conditions go uh, you know what you'll actually have to think strategically about what you need to hold and why you need to hold it and and which units are now suddenly expendable that weren't before and why you're actually doing things and and uh, I know, and like but, I say, and, and, and that and that is why that is why scenarios are worth writing, and I think that's why we uh, yeah. believe, at the very least, you should have six scenarios with a d6 table, so that when people turn up to the table, you have at least asked them. They don't have to, hmm. at least ask them. Roll a dice, and you'll find out which of the six victory conditions and sort of strategic questions have been laid in front of them. And yeah. at minimum, I think that's what you should offer players. I think it's a great place to take a quick break. Hmm. And, I, and again, I think it might be stepping on the toes of the second half of the conversation here a little bit, but part of me suspects is that one of the reasons that scenarios aren't as heavily played as maybe it'd be nice that they were, is that they actually ask people to do some proper thinking at the tabletop rather than there is a degree to which people want some thinking but not too much thinking i want to think about how i employ my my lovely pre-built engine but i don't want to have to think on the tabletop go back in and re-tinker with the engine and figure out or oh, which bits of it can do this bit and which bits of it can do that bit i kind of want to coast a little bit so do and you... when people do you think do you think then that there are because I see exactly where you're coming from. And I think that there potentially do you think there are two kinds of tactical challenges then? There is the armchair gaming complicated list building of 40k and Warhammer where it doesn't really matter. Like having the same scenario again and again, or only a small variety of scenarios, is reasonably satisfying still because the tactical challenge of list building is good. Whereas if you've got something where the list building is relatively low key compared to that sort of a exploding options, then what you're given and the challenge that you have to do, like that's where the it's much less armchair and much more at the table. Um, yeah, yeah, is I it, do. Is it, is those two things would give you a way of saying, well, is my game is my game super list building heavy or is it super at the table heavy? Because like that's yeah. like there's a ridiculously the skew of a billion suns is like why don't we try oh, yeah, a game yeah. that's entirely that thing and not at all that thing. Um, mm. But I think that if you're trying to write a game which is an armchair gamer friendly thing, which is 
okay, I'm going to provide a lot of overlapping options with interesting, intricate interplays. And by discovering those interplays and, and sympathies, I will discover a lawnmower. Then maybe you don't need to place as much emphasis on the scenario in your design. Oh, possibly. I need to track back a, a little bit just for a second and talk mm. about the, the the special rules that you do put into a scenario, because I think mm -hmm. it's worth saying. And you, you, I think you mentioned it at the top is being fair and affecting everybody equally, which is which is not nothing. And it doesn't come about naturally. And it genuinely takes quite a bit of focus to make sure that Oh, oh, just a minute. I thought this particular special rule where a thing bursts out of the ground affects everyone equally. But actually, if those guys are faster, they're all going to hit the things that burst out the ground first because they, you know, or if this is a close combat army and that's a ranged army and things just burst out of the ground, you could say, well, look, everyone's on the ground. It's like, yeah, but only one of the armies has got to run, run across it to, to mm. get to the other side making sure that all of your special rules are genuinely equal and genuinely affect both sides evenly yeah. um, is very important also making sure that special rules aren't too fiddly or too complex one or two d6 tables is fine embedded tables in a scenario is a little bit of a frightening prospect for people where it's okay roll a d6 and that d6 says roll a d6 on this other table and yeah that might be a bit too much and it's simply because when somebody hasn't pre-seen the, the scenarios ideally should be discoverable at the table somebody should be able to come to the table see the scenario for the first ever time in their life and have some solid idea of what's going to happen and what sort of tactical challenges are going to come across as soon as you put in like an embedded table or or a table with shifting probabilities across the table that's a lot for someone to take in what the probability of is of them encountering the thing that's in the embedded table during the game and sometimes you do get some of these special rules where an the thing from one of these tables pops up and it changes the game and someone's like i I had no way of knowing that that was going to be there. It's like, well, you could have. You could have done the math and figured out the probability and calculated it and put something in to, to allow for it when it came up. But people don't want to do that and they shouldn't sort of, shouldn't be forced into it at a, at a, at a moment's notice. After victory conditions, as I say, they, the end conditions of a scenario. End conditions aren't directly part of victory conditions, but they are a very important part, certainly of narrative scenarios. If a scenario is trying to tell a certain story, it's important that when the story juice is sort of used up, the scenario ends. There's nothing more tragic than having a narrative scenario where the, the big moment has happened and then there's like two turns of people just scurrying around a tabletop or the last turn movement of somebody suddenly for some reason turning away from the main battle line and running over in a random direction to stand on a hill or the last dude of a particular unit who is suddenly worth 20 times his normal victory points because he's the last guy of a unit running and hiding down a well at the last second because everyone knows this is the last turn and it's time to secure some last second victory points so i think it's why often you see random turn limit end conditions in games is to save everybody from that sort of acting like a complete lunatic on the the preordained final turn of the game one of the things i think that came up with a billion sons was that the game ends when the various contracts are paid out mm -hmm. so the game ends when there's no more juice left in the game to play 
And that, I think, funnily enough, it came from us playtesting. And originally in playtesting, um, A Billion Suns had a much longer turn limit. And it just turned out that everyone jumped out on about turn three. And then there was like a couple of lit ships dotted around on turn four that had nothing really to do. And it was like, well, if you have to jump out to take your ill-gotten gains with you, and so everyone's jumping out on turn three anyway, the only thing you're considering doing on turn four is jumping in a new set of ships and restarting the cycle. That was sort of where we made the decision to say, okay, it ends when the contract is paid out and the contract pays out in three turns. Well, um, and also, and also, and also, in a billion suns, there was a there's an entropy built into all normal games where you start with two thousand points and then stuff gets blown up and the game becomes faster and more kind of condensed. But in a game with infinite reinforcements, there's no such entropy to a degree. And so, mm. like, what having a turn limit or or an objective sort of triggered end game thing is it puts a pressure on the situation where it's like you can't just sit there for three turns not deploying anything looking at the other guy and going well are you going to deploy something well are you going to deploy something like you need to put some pressure on the situation where um as soon as somebody makes a move like boom the clock is ticking fast Mm. i think the the, i've got many feelings on this topic so one feeling i have on this topic is that uh one of the things that people talk about in um a billion suns is that it's only three turns literally people mm. have written it's only three turns i'm not sure it's worth playing a game that's only three turns which mm-hmm. is a mind-boggling statement but it <laughs> comes from it comes from a default turn setting from warhammer which is there are six turns that's the number mm-hmm. of turns that there are in a game system like that's meaningless it's absolutely meaningless the number of turns in a system is how long does it take me to play a 90 minutes to 200 to, to two hour long game like that's the number of mm-hmm. turns and if there are a small number of units that take faster uh, to activate let's have 12 turns if there are a large set of armies that take a lot of uh, activations like let's have three turns it doesn't it doesn't mm-hmm. matter it just matters how much juice you squeeze out of it. the other thing is that there are only three turns well in warhammer turn one is boring like turn one is mm-hmm. just move everything nothing happens a cannon shoots a general the end like i don't want that turn that turn was thrown out of a billion suns and you cut straight to turn three just like a mm. novel where it just goes things were exploding all around her and she ran bleeding into the sh- like like mm. starting the action so that's my first that's my first uh, sort of feeling is turn limits are there exactly as you say to like explain when the excitement needs to end but i think also to like apply some pressure at the front of that mm. so it's it condenses the action into something that's exciting and has a has a definite end yeah i think i think it's bizarre how many game systems have for whatever reason arbitrarily plumped for six turns as the turn limit six turns turns up more regularly than you would probably expect within skirmish games and i don't think it's I think that a depressing, not depressing, but a, a sad amount of the time, the turn limit is the point at which there will be nothing more interesting of any kind to occur whatsoever. And I would far rather see a game where it, that says, okay, at the apex of the, of the fighting, at the point where it's right on a knife edge, that's when we're going to call it. That's what you've got. You've got to be one millimeter ahead on the correct turn rather than, well, it's all decided now anyway. You know, yeah, we, I mean, just... we, look, we, we know from board games where the playtime is much condensed that you, you, you mustn't outstay your welcome. 
and hmm. for miniature war games because of the amount of stuff that's involved i think miniature war games traditionally are happy to act, outstay their welcome because they mm. they can be quite leisurely stately affairs where you know you turned up with you know 600 miniatures and you just want to play for the rest of the day and so forth and i think that almost games that play in 45 minutes and you can play three of them in an in a club session they're almost like slightly looked down on as well you know mm. that's not a that's not a full bodied miniature game experience it needs to take three hours or, or or it needs to go home so i think that i think that that is a consideration because i do think that players have an expectation which is it oughtn't to be 45 minutes like that's just a you know that's a it's okay for a for a card based board game to take 30 minutes or 45 minutes but that's not a that's not a serious amount of time for a miniature game and I don't necessarily have a stance on that. I just think that's a consideration for the market. But at the same time, I totally agree that rather than a game finishing on turn six, but everything that was interesting happened on turn four and no, no further, like fine, finish the game on turn four. Because if the game ends on turn four, then it just adds a bunch of panic and chaos to the end of turn four, where you're like, oh my goodness, I've got to make a bunch of hard decisions. And rather than having a bunch of non-decisions happening in turn fours and five and six where it's like well obviously i'm going to do this not obviously i'm going to do that like force all the okay i can only do one of the exciting things which one's going to get me the most victory points i'm going to have to just do that even though it's the more risky mm. i think that's actually that's actually one of the reasons why the other feeling that i have which is i don't like random turn limits i really really like as a player not as a designer i really as a player i like knowing how many activations i've got left to solve the puzzle that my that the, the scenario author and my opponent has laid out in front of me. And so when the victory conditions aren't kill everything and a puzzle has been put in front of me, if I try and execute the best solution for that puzzle and then there's another two turns, I'm like, well, ah, the rug got whipped out of me. And I know that I'm supposed to therefore plan for all three of those scenarios, the one where we had five turns, the one we had six, the one we had seven. But that's like, that's where complexity turns into work for me. I think I think the thing of a random term limit is that it's just to make sure that there's no known final turn. Because if it is like, okay, I can get what I wanted to done by turn X, and there might be a turn X plus one, X plus two, and then in those other turns, but I, I think I think that's turns. I think that's as achievable by having a slightly shorter game than you expect as it is by having a slightly more random game than you'd expect. So the the sort of yeah. scenario where we do all of the kicking each other in the face and then we sort of march back and I sit on the toilet and you sit in the castle and, you know, that's where we have to mm. do it. Turns five and six are us, like, going back and sewing our little tapestries of how we won. Like, that's boring. Mm. And the reason that it's boring is either you didn't know that you had those... You knew you had those turns. You had perfect information that you had those turns. Or the game is two turns too long and, like, mm. don't give people time to write their tapestries. Just, like, finish the game where it's like, oh, my God, ah! we didn't have time yeah. and i didn't get all the victory points but did you squeak one more than me okay exciting all right um, so to, to round to round off this technical discussion of scenarios glenn how right. many scenarios should your skirmish game have six 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 is the correct answer six roll, a d6. Six is, roll it roll a d6 as, as many, why not one why is one the wrong answer i think my actual feeling is that it, you should have as many scenarios as you can ask interesting questions about parts of your game system 
that's that that's a slightly longer and more more clunky answer like so for example in in gaslands i really wanted there to be the the saturday like live scenario which asked a question about how you generate votes Mm-hmm. And so you've got the race scenario, which asks a question about racing, which is the main scenario. You've got the uh, arena of death scenario, which is a question about blowing things up. You've got the Saturday Night Live scenario, which is about picking up your votes. And then you've got a, a handful of narrative scenarios. You've you've got the the zombie smash, which is basically well, the, the, the zombie one is a combination of like of other things which is basically can you dry can you pull donuts in the desert effectively mm. which is genuinely a which is genuinely a part of that game which needs to exist yeah and it's the thing and it, honestly if if you've got a scenario that asks a question about a subsection of the game or or a, or a subsection of testing your players in an interesting way that you haven't tested them previously mm. that scenario needs to exist if you're writing a scenario because you've got five scenarios and Mike and Glenn said that you needed six scenarios and what scenario six does is it tests pretty much what scenario one tested, then just five scenarios would be absolutely fine. With no, you, you have to have six. It. You heard it here. <laughs> put, in, put in that number six can be pick a scenario of your choice rather than roll on a, roll on a dice roll. Number six should be um, flag tag. Always have a flag tag. How many scenarios are in Gaslands Refueled? There, 15? Right. They, yeah. There you go. Then some things to put in a good a good scenario should be flexible. It's good. It's a good idea to allow players to maybe tweak it a little bit, especially if they want to play it multiplayer. It should be fair. Um, you you shouldn't be doing things that will favour one player over another. Fair and also satisfying in the way that it pays out. Discoverable rather than learnable is a phrase I like about a good scenario. So I don't want to feel like the person who won the scenario won it because they learnt the scenario before getting to the table. I don't want it to be that whoever owns the book is probably going to be the one who suggests we play a scenario and then be the one who's going to win the scenario. I want the scenario yeah. to be one that you, I can have presented to me, discover at the table and have yeah, uh, that, a that solid chance. More, more than anything like you mentioned before that's a question of simplicity like are the special yeah. rules and the victory conditions transparent and understandable enough that explained once they're obvious yeah and i and it should be it should vary from the core game in a way that's both new but logical yeah what i what i don't want is a scenario that, that does make make any sense given what the the more core version of play is i don't want to sort of have a core game which is about everybody killing everybody else and then a scenario which is about everybody going down to a tea shop in order to find the best doily and then wear it as a hat whilst dancing in the street in circles you know there needs to be some logical attachment to what i've tried to do in my previous games and what i am now trying to do in in this game for for wrapping up this section of the conversation what i'd suggest to people is Find a a system that you enjoy and that you know well. Find a scenario that that you already enjoy and you already like. And just tweak out a few things that haven't sat well in previous plays. Maybe you play the the scenario as a multiplayer and it was designed for for two players. And maybe you find you hitting a piggy in the middle situation. Write some rules to to pan that out. Maybe it turns out that a particular scenario overly favours one of your friend's armies and not another and just maybe try and tweak it a little bit to to even it out then offer it to your friends to play and then keep tweaking it until they ask to play your version of it and keep tweaking it until your friends ask if you've written another scenario and 
once somebody says, if, if you've got a version of this scenario, if you've got one of your scenarios, that's a great sign that you're ready to start writing something a bit more involved. That's when maybe start writing a campaign system. We can get onto that at a at a later point. Mike, is there anything that you want to add to, to that part of the conversation? No, Mike, that's perfect. Well, in that case, I think it's time for a quick break. We started a conversation just a moment ago, if you're listening on the podcast, about uh, scenarios and scenario design and how one approaches uh, designing scenarios in miniature games. Now, we'd like to talk a bit more, I think, about the different flavours of scenarios that you might consider writing, uh, whether they be narrative scenarios, scenarios for campaigns, multiplayer scenarios, solo scenarios. And then I suppose we want to talk a little bit maybe towards the back end of this conversation about the sad truth that sometimes scenarios really don't get played as much as whatever the default way of playing a particular miniatures game is. So let's dig into this. Glenn, have you got a sort of taxonomy of uh, scenarios in front of you? I've got a little list of some different uh, from normal scenario, scenario, scenarios that we might have a little chat about. So the four I've got scribbled down here that step out a little bit from the from the crowd of scenarios are um, solo scenarios, system versions of the game that are designed for people to play totally solo or against the game. Oh, I've chosen to call uh, sort of combinatorial scenarios, something a bit like the system in A Billion Suns, where there isn't a single set scenario, but there's a combination of objectives or elements that build up to make a scenario. It's also basically the system that you see in Malifaux, for example. Narrative scenarios, uh, these are often sort of put forward as being narrative versus competitive scenarios. So uh, a scenario that's very heavily telling a story. The uh, the end times scenarios were, are a great example of this. I think... Uh, before we started recording, Michael was waving Tamakan Throne of Chaos at me for an example of a set of narrative scenarios. And then um, campaign scenarios, uh, the ways in which a scenario that's going to work for a campaign game needs to be uh, a bit different from a scenario that's going to work for a, for a main game. So maybe we'll, we'll take those in turn. So uh, solo scenarios uh, now is, for various reasons, something that you see quite rarely tends to be a, a supplement or, well, or sometimes you, 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 second you say that we've we've all been quite we've all been quite focused on them over the last eighteen months for obvious reasons. Well, yeah, yeah. For, I, 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 I'm I'm ex I've had some real successes and failures in solo scenario writing over the last eighteen months because it turns out that writing satisfying solo scenarios i think depends on what the core kind of game feeling is so for gaslands i am really been struggling to find an exciting solo mechanic whereas for billion suns the solo scenarios uh, that i published recently in miniature war games they they arrived very naturally from the game system and i think that my at least for me like my um inspiration for solo gaming is i spend a lot of time putting miniatures on the table and pushing them around as part of playtesting and so i kind of i know what amuses me and what kind of challenges i want and i think that another rich area of solo scenario design is solo board games particularly kind of the the sort of more miniature heavy kind of dungeon crawly type things like are there, are there models with AI that you have to interact with mm. and so forth? But I think that at its heart, like whether you succeed in writing a solo scenario or not sort of depends on what the core loops and satisfactions mm. that the game delivers are. Yeah, no, 100%. Because obviously, not obviously, but 
I think there are two main ways of uh, creating a solo scenario. There's some form of cardboard AI, which mm -hmm. you're you're basically trying to write something to fill in for the other players, and then pretty something much something that pre presents the same kind of tensions on the on the resources or the board state that you're that you would normally yeah. experience, but it just does it as a mechanical uh, yeah. force. Or a scenario that gives you maybe the more narrative version of a solo scenario, a, a scenario that says, you know, you, you've got X many jobs to do on this tabletop. You've got X limitations on being able to do it. Can you get them all done? And I think it's, um, I think this is a good, uh, a good example here is the difference maybe between A Billion Suns and Gaslands because A Billion Suns has a, an inherent natural pressure on the player of there's a needle to thread of the minimum resources you can put in in order to get the job done that's the the core state of a billion suns and then the other player is sort of special source thrown into that that situation where they start messing with your equation for how you can most efficiently achieve your job Whereas Gaslands to, you know, to much a much greater degree is it's a non-trivial thing driving a Gaslands car round a Gaslands track, but without another player trying to do it more quickly than you, uh, at the very bumping, least. And bumping into you. Racing round the Gaslands track doesn't have that same pressure. And I suppose maybe that's, if you got, if you said to somebody, design a track that's really hard to get round in three turns, get around it in three turns that would probably work as a gasland solo scenario but you're asking people to do a lot of heavy lifting in the designer track that's really hard to get around in when right maybe so sorry maybe solo gaslands needs to be on a grid and you lay out <laughs> the track on a grid and uh and then you play with templates but now I mean, we all have, have grid now we all have to have grid uh gaming maps you're saying that as though you are not struggling to figure out what solo scenarios for Gaslands look like, and you're now. I've been, I've I've been probably... failing for eighteen months. I, I I was flicking through my notebook this morning, actually, looking back on some of my old, my earlier failed attempts. Um, I think yeah. the, the the job the jobs to do thing I think is is super interesting because whereas in a in a in a line them up and shoot them kind of a game like uh, you know the, the opponent is fundamentally objective and if you take away the hmm. opponent there is no objective there's nothing there and so I think a solo mission has to have some kind of job to be done and I think what's interesting which you know we can call back to in the campaign system is that what I have discovered as part of writing solo scenarios recently is. The, the meta tension that you put on the, the scenario by saying this is a solo scenario with jobs to be done that is part of a campaign is actually really exciting because where you say okay you can win by degrees from you know d c b and a are your degrees of victory and what you get for the next game is dependent on how well you do like this is a thing that's that i've learned from board games but it says the game is more exciting because I could cream in at a C rank, but I'm desperate to get that A rank because I'll get some more goodies for that. And so I will play for an A, even though, strictly speaking, you know, a C is as much as a victory as an A is. But by placing some kind of meta effect, some kind of campaign rules, I think what you do is you ask the player to play harder for something solo scenarios it's it's important to apply some sort of pressure on the player to to not just coast at any point in the game because mm. 
you know, you're on your own. You've technically achieved basic victory conditions. Why not just not push yourself for the rest of the scenario? Often you need to make time pressures a lot tighter and you need to hopefully give people a set of things that need to be done that are non-trivial to achieve. And I think it's one of the things that it's so hard to write a solo scenario for a competitive war game because it's so baked into many competitive war games that the the non-trivial element is the other human being yeah. trying to stick sticks in the spokes of your wheel yeah. um and finding a job that's actually hard for the the troops in a normal war game to do that is incredibly complicated to set out um, in a scenario format and yet is possible for those troops to do it's a very tricky needle to thread so you know, why give... why why bother why write a solo why write a solo selection of scenarios i suppose on on a purely design challenge level if you really want to push yourself for for a sort of design challenge take your favorite game and design a solo scenario for it on a more basic level because you can't always find another human playing to human being to play your favorite game with you and maybe you want to get your favorite game on the tabletop and mm. and run it through um, in a more convenient way. We've all been there where we've got a system that we think is brilliant and nobody else wants to pick up. And it would be nice to sort of maybe get those models out and push them around a little bit without relying on somebody else to pick them up. But I, I think it teaches you how the game works under the hood by trying to write another end of the uh, the scenario in a way that isn't incredibly complicated but is effective as a challenge. So I think I think it's just it's a good um, a good game design struggle to put yourself through if you want to if you want to learn to write games. Although I would um, also say I would also say give yourself the freedom to fail to do that because uh, <laughs> repeatedly not all, not ahead. all game not all games are fun solo and I think that what you just mm. said there is it's intrinsic like some games so at their core expect other players to be there in the mix and there just isn't there isn't anything there when you try and write a solo scenario there's just nothing left okay uh so the second sort of uh slightly more out there version of scenarios is let's say it's the it's a version of scenario building that's there in a billion suns it's mm -hmm. the version of scenario building that's there to a greater or lesser degree in malifaux Mm -hmm. where rather than having a single scenario that sets out your objectives and your conditions and your setup conditions, it throws them all together out of a, a sort of mixed melting pot. And in actuality, I think Malifaux is funny enough talking about it being very central to A Billion Suns. I think Malifaux does it even more so than A Billion Suns because Malifaux puts your setup conditions randomly determined your objectives are built up out of a set of randomly determined objectives and not just that the there's a pool of objectives that it builds that different players can pick a different set of objectives from them so it's not it's not as out there possibly as some people have suggested from from a billion suns um yeah and, but and it, other other things that behave in this way so infinity certainly the version that i played uh, a few years ago you set up a standard scenario which de determines the major objectives and then you have a set of secret objectives um from the sort of secret operations deck um mm. more recently uh, adeptus titanicus with its kind of standard open play version is you, you just roll up a, a few you, you draw a few mission cards and uh, you choose one of those and so you're both 
potentially doing completely asymmetrical missions. Mm. I mean, I, I, I think I think the, the the main thing about this sort of a this sort of a setup is, as you were talking about before, like it's very at the table. It's very like you get a set of stuff that emerges right there at the beginning of setting up to play, and so nobody's come to the table with a hyper specialized list for a particular way of playing because they knew that they were going to determine the scenario or whatnot i think what it is is it sort of says well know your forces know the game know your opponent and then we'll throw down something which is you know variations of it on a theme and then you're going to have to improvise around that theme in order to come out on top and i think that for me that's a very satisfying play experience which is you bring a bunch of knowledge from your armchair wargaming which is how well do i know myself my own sort of forces and how well do i know yours but then it, a lot of it's at the table and you can't really just say well you just brought the killer force for that particular you know matchup um and i think yeah. that's why i find those procedural or kind of e emergent combinatory um scenarios so satisfying is that i'm essentially a lazy wargamer and i don't care to do or have the time to do a bunch of revision prior to playing to a game i would much rather have a crisp rule system that i understand and that asks me questions at the table and then i have a stressful experience trying to understand <laughs> what the what the options are at the table rather than having yeah. a stressful experience preparing for that yeah, and I think I think that that quite neatly encapsulates some of the pros and cons of that as a system. Is that I played games of Warhammer where I didn't need to play the game of Warhammer. It was pre-decided when the two of us were at home writing our army lists, and as soon as I roll my army list out against your army list, I can tell you how you're going to lose and where you're going to lose and why you're going to lose. And there's no point going through the the motions. And that's a lot harder to do when uh, the whole game is built up in the sort of procedural fashion but you do front load at the table a lot for people when you do that mm -hmm. and as much as you say you don't like pre-studying the the game when you look at something like Malifaux there's a lot of homework in Malifaux because you need to know everything that you could face and every every tool that's in your toolbox and you need to hit the ground running when when that sort of scenarios come out one of the problems with these sort of procedural scenario generation systems is that they they don't have a base default scenario for people. They don't no, have there's, a, no, there's no standard way of playing it. Yeah, there, there's no intro for people to find their feet with the game. There's no sort of well, all right, I just march forward and I kill things right. No, 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 no. You, you've got to do this and got to do that. But like I say, there's a lot of front loading. And a lot of the time they're sort of, well, what have I got to do? Eh, it depends what you choose to do. I, I, I don't know the game yet. I don't know what I need to choose to do. All right, I'll choose that one. How do I do it? Well, it depends what tools you choose to you do it with. But that, but that, that, is, that, is, not, that is not an um, unfamiliar situation for board gamers. So quite hmm. often when you've got particularly a relatively chunky Euro game where there's a lot of ways to win. There's a lot of paths to victory mm. and I can build an engine over here or I can rush a thing over there. Like the end of the first game, the standard response is, okay, so what did I learn about all of the mistakes that I made so that I can play like mm. not horribly next turn? And I always assume that my first game of any Euro is going to be like me playing like a toddler. 
And I think that that is okay if your game is sort of fast enough and doesn't, you know, and sort of presents itself in that way. Like I am very happy to play a war game where you get to the end of the first game and it sort of slaps you around the face and goes, well, look at all those things that you didn't know. And I don't necessarily find that as an insult. I go, oh, okay, you've got depths and I need to figure you out. I'm okay with that. Yeah, but you know, the number of games that you play where you end up getting slapped around for the face for having made a lot of mistakes at the end of them is possibly more than the normal person. And with that, we'll take a quick break. So narrative scenarios is another sort of interesting sub mm-hmm. subsection scenario scenario world. I suppose narrative scenarios, one of the interesting elements to them is that they're not always fair. Um, they're not always balanced. They're would, would often... we would we go so far as to say if it is asymmetrical, therefore it is narrative? Is one does one lead to the other or whatnot? <sighs> I think it, it depends on why the because I can I, think, think, I can think of one very there. specifically one very specific example where it's not true, which is uh, all quiet on the Martian front, which like at its heart says one person is the humans, one person is the Martians. This will never be fair. But almost I, everything else says the forces will be roughly equal in power, and then occasionally you throw in a scenario where it's like one person only has fifty percent of the forces, and obviously that's not mm-hmm. fair. I mean, narrative is a is a funny word to use because obviously all scenarios are narrative to some degree. All of them are setting up. You're, you're here and you're being ambushed. You've lined up at a battlefield and the people you across the battlefield you hate for some uh, this obscure... Is, we, are we wandering into narrative as an excuse for not well-designed? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... Look, <laughs> All, all scenarios have some have some element element of story to them. Hmm. I think a narrative scenario is one where yeah, if the game doesn't tell a story. I don't think it's succeeding. I think a game should always yeah. tell a narrative. Yeah, yeah. So and that, and that's why the dichotomy of narrative versus competitive in scenarios, I think, is quite false. I don't think it's a case of you know these are the scenarios you might consider playing at a tournament. And these are the narrative scenarios. Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it. because that 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 comparison makes it sort of sound like narrative scenarios should be like play just to find out what happens, and it doesn't matter who wins. But of course, when you get to the table, emotions rise, and you get invested, and of course, you want to win. You're a human. You're hmm. playing a game. The point of a game is to win. And so to a degree, an, a narrative scenario is partly it doesn't matter who wins, which is a dangerous place to wander. Possibly one of the best uh, sort of explanations is a narrative scenario is a scenario that nobody would ever consider playing at a tournament and almost nobody would ever consider playing as a pickup game. They, they tend to require a bit more pre-reading and a bit more organization by the players. And you can have competitive narrative scenarios. If anything... I think contained within the narrative scenario, there's a possibility that the army lists are going to be fully preset for you. There's, there's, there are quite a few narrative scenarios where they say these are exactly the forces you get. Historical uh, war game is replete with narrative scenarios where they say, well, these are exactly the forces you get because they were the forces that were yeah, there. Or, 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 the affo- or the aforementioned Warhammer end time scenarios, which are quite, in, they're quite informed by narrative, uh, by historical yeah. war gaming, where it's like, Here's the number of chaos knights that were in this fictional. Exactly. Battle. And it's, it's interesting, though, because I think that, like, maybe 
maybe what we mean by narrative scenario is quite often friendly scenario, which is it's not competitive, it's friendly. We are both going to agree that this is not fair. And if I lose, I can lose with honour because I, because I started with half the models that you started with. I, th I, think, I think possibly sort of on reflection, I think what I mean when something is a narrative scenario is that it's a bit more, um, it's more Baroque. It, it can be totally competitive and totally even, but it's going to ask more of the people who are involved with it, sometimes in order for it to be fair and competitive, because sometimes it's going to say, okay, you need to take like, these troops and they have these special rules and they interact in these ways and if you understand all of these quite baroque special rules and if you understand the troops that you've been asked to take and you lead into the the force selection you, you you've been forced into then it will be a fair and competitive balanced scenario mm. if you don't do any of those things then it's just it's absolutely not and it and it's gonna i could say you know i played through the whole of the uh, the Warhammer End times, and they were they were narrative scenarios, they were balanced scenarios. But if somebody didn't pre-read the scenario and somebody else did, they were not fair because the person who read the scenario would just completely steamroll the other person because there were so many of these baroque, tweaky, twiddly hmm. special rules and conditions and elements. And I think I think possibly the thing to say is that a narrative scenario is one where you're asking frankly asking too much of your players if i'm honest it's it's asking more than you it's, deserve yeah, it's, it's asking is asking for much more of your players mm. and saying yeah i mean if you're prepared to give it here is something that you wouldn't get otherwise yeah i mean what 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 have end times asked way too much of me way 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 <laughs> on the bank of glen and never repaid you <laughs> i mean you know, I I I played Warhammer uh, Fantasy Battle since I was a grasshopper, and and so coming to the end of that system, and there being a a, a, a final denouement of the decades of play that I put into it, meant that I was willing to invest that into it. Nobody else can take those sorts of liberties. I, I is, is what I would say is you 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 can't ask the pain of your players that that something like end times asked but you can do a little bit of that you know gaslands refueled has what i would consider a narrative scenario in uh linking scenario in the in the sort of fury road version where you say okay you, you're going to need a war rig the other people are going to need to understand what they need to put in their team to deal with the final war rig scenario etc etc et it's not asking a massive investment of players you're gonna have to read ahead before writing your lists and somebody's gonna have to get together a war rig it asks but it asks a bit you can't play that as a pickup game you couldn't put it into a tournament no um, no, no that's true although but it, but it gives that, but it pays you back i think yeah the point i agree and another way of looking at that i think which is the way that i tend to think of it and it's interesting to hear that you're kind of describing it in terms of a complexity budget that is higher I suppose the, the other way to look at it, which is which is how I tend to see it previously, is purely in terms of asymmetry, a, a which is narrative scenarios allow you an asymmetry, which sort of straight up scenarios tend not to trouble themselves with, because the straight up scenarios are trying to say, well, two players bring the the things that they have painted to the table and they will genuinely they will 
generally rather have a have a good time whereas a narrative scenario for me is it, it, to a degree a shorthand to say well let's have an asymmetrical scenario where both players don't have access to the normal stuff and so i think that for me asymmetry in deployment and force selection and victory conditions has always been very interesting because it sort of it throws out a different game experience where both players are struggling with something different and the satisfaction of that it's not the same as you know we were both playing chess and the person who played chess more effectively won it's like hey we were kind of exploring a fun sort of story that unfolded and it was never fair for me and you know you were always going to take the castle but you know it was fun to find out how many turns i could last for or whatnot yeah and i and i think i think that's partly to do with the pickup games by pickup games i mean a game where you turn up to a club with your preset forces and you just roll in and you play whoever pickup games are inherently anathema to asymmetry you yeah. can't have a system that has a symmetry built in and then roll into a club and play a pickup game with it because you would need to know that the lock for your key was was there so i i've bought the the half size force well everybody's built the half size force oh well, okay now we can't play our asymmetrical game and that's why i think asymmetry is built it is part of narrative scenarios because <laughs> it presupposes that you've pre-organized to play your asymmetrical game rather than that you've rolled in for a pickup or a tournament or whatever it happens to I be. Think, I think if I, if I might get slightly philosophical on that, I think that the, the social nature of a war game requires a deep-seated trust to exist between the two players, that they trust each other enough to have an enjoyable two-way experience. And I think that there is there's the trust that exists between friends where... The people that I love playing games with, we can put anything on the table and throw any sort of forces at any other forces and we will find a way for that to be enjoyable because we trust that the other person both wants to have a good time and wants me to have a good time. But the wonderful thing about symmetrical competitive pickup game types of scenarios is that you don't have to have that trust because the, the scenario provides that trust. It says, here is something that mm. both of you play in this manner. You can trust that the playing field is level and that the best man will win. And I think that's why, you know, very competitive games like Magic the Gathering or, or whatnot, they are very effective at bringing people from very different backgrounds and very different play styles together because they present an incredibly even playing field that allows a trust to exist between two players very quickly. And it's kind of a magical thing. And I, I th there's a school of design which says, you know, writing competitive rules is somehow dirty and is sort of like, you know, not playing to the spirit of the war game. But the spirit of the war game is two people having fun. And if those people know each other very well, you can get away with a lot. And narrative scenarios, I think, are written for two players who know and love each other very much and can get away with a lot. And that's, that's kind of magical. And I think that's why, I think that's ultimately why I have a ton of books on my shelf with narrative scenarios on. And the total playtime of my wargaming has been probably, you know, probably 60% people I know very, very well and have a sort of deep trust relationship with. And maybe 40% people that I don't really know and would rather just play kind of a, a straight up game with where the trust relationship is provided by the system. And I think that's why narrative scenarios probably 
exist on more people's bookshelves than have been played. I don't think narrative scenarios in general get played as much as anything else because because they ask that much more from your player and that they, um, I don't know, they're kind of kind of exciting to read and then actually organizing them to take place is more complicated. Yeah, I think, it's like I say, I think fundamentally narrative scenarios require pre-organization and just getting yourself into gear mm. um, and, you know, saying, okay, next week we're going to play that narrative scenario. So you need to take blah, 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 blah. I need to dig out my such like and whatnot. And then next week, next time we meet, we can play the narrative scenario. We can't play it this week. We haven't got the right stuff. But next week, oh, it's, it's putting off the, the, the fun a lot of the time. And so the last sort of uh, general oddball sort of scenario, I would say, are uh, campaign scenarios. The sort, obviously, the sorts of scenarios that are going to go into a campaign system. There's a few reasons that I think you need to maybe write something a little different to go into a campaign system. The first is that one of the inherent things we want in a campaign system is some form of persistent damage. We want heroes and whatnot to get killed and then have a gammy leg afterwards. And so you probably want a scenario that isn't definitely going to turn into a horrifying meat grinder every single time people get put into it. Otherwise, very, very quickly, nobody wants to play because all of their shiny heroes are missing both eyes and are being dragged around by by their minions. One of the other elements I think is that a good campaign system is going to it's going to want you to be able to section out the ways in which people have achieved things in a more granular fashion than a normal campaign. I'm going to want to know who did this particular heroic action, picked up a little bit of experience, did something particularly cool. I'm going to want them to have opportunities to do those cool things. And then equally, I'm going to want to know who got away with the most loot yeah. or, or who got the most injuries or who injured the most opponents. I'm going to want to record more gubbins on a campaign scenario. And I'm going to want more, more paths to, to progress for my characters in a campaign scenario than I think I want in, in a pickup scenario. Because if you, if you look at, campaign systems that just use pickup scenarios you tend to have one path for people to you win the game or you lose the game some people get their legs chopped off and, and some people don't and those campaign systems suffer from campaign snowballing so heavily they're, they're just absolute avalanches where about two games in nobody's playing the campaign anymore because somebody's already won and there's there's really no although have, having written one of those recently like one approach to that is secondary missions so if you if you say hey play pickup game b you know from the scenarios that you've already got but then say okay but if somebody manages to you know rescue this person or you know collect this objective or whatever then like you know secret clue is revealed to them or you know, mystic talk is now uh, within their possession. So I think that secondary secondary objectives kind of give you a way of saying, well, I've got the scenarios that I know roughly work and that will hold the objectives, that will hold the victory conditions together. And then I'll layer some additional trifle layers on top of that, which is, okay, 
if, if you're already nailing the core objectives, then like go and rescue this thing or go and, you know, pick up that treasure. So that can be quite a good way of writing those. One of the things you can do in, in campaign scenarios is to have your, your branching tree scenarios where, you know, you've got two players and if mm. player X wins this, we play this scenario and player Y wins it, we play that scenario. The thing that's tricky, I think, to do in campaign systems is always to reward the winner without making life pointless for the loser you want there to be that, a point that, that's, to a, that's an entire podcast episode I think. yeah no absolutely we we need to Although do actually a, a what you on, just mentioned there, campaign. Just recall, you can probably still get this on ebay somewhere but there's a warhammer lustria book which has yeah i've got warhammer lustria i think this is the one that has like a really nice description of the different kinds of campaign systems that can exist and it goes mm. through sort of what a tree campaign system might behave like it's sort of like it's almost written for like the budding campaign writer mm. yeah no it, it, yeah it's, it's it's a really good book if you're looking at a tree system then you've got to put in later scenarios that are probably the, it's where you want to pull in some narrative scenarios because mm -hmm. if you if you play scenario one and then the tree branches off and what it says is if you won scenario one you're probably going to win scenario two then no one's playing scenario two and they're certainly not playing scenario three and it was a waste of time writing all those campaign systems out what you want for your branching tree is to say okay maybe game two is still perfectly even but the winner of game one is wearing a big i'm the daddy of the don hat and the loser of the previous scenario has to occasionally occasionally applaud them on their hat and the the standiness of their hat and how big and clever they are but the new game is totally even anyway and a good branching campaign scenario in my opinion is a series of bragging rights conditionals and stories about who's the stinky loser and, and who's the king of the castle rather well, so than something... coming coming out soon and i'm not sure exactly when this comes out you know relative to this podcast or video but Gasland's legacy takes all of the scenarios from Gasland's because I know that they work nicely and I don't want to have to fess around with the um, victory conditions. But depending on different outcomes and the, the final game state, it will reveal to you different story kind of nuggets or mm. will give you different rewards. And that's quite a chaotic campaign system anyway. So that, that was a the first time that as a campaign author I have experimented with you might do poorly in a game but if you triggered a certain thing then a clue became available to you and then the bragging rights or the, the sort of enjoyment you get from that is that you got a little flavor of, of, of something new like you were the only person that unlocked that particular story nugget um yeah um, but I mean, I mean there's quite a lot there's quite a lot of work that goes into that you know if you're if you're planning to write a campaign for your for your friends then that there's a lot of work that goes into that mm. yeah we will definitely do a campaign writing a campaign system uh video and podcast at some point oh boy how you've got things to say about that and 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 how but anyway uh yeah campaign scenarios are their own um delightful little nugget of joy um, and, and should be considered separately on that basis. So with that, we'll take a quick break. So to, to sort of round off this conversation, yep. we've, talked to, we've talked about scenarios, obviously. We've got books and books full of scenarios. 
every system it feels like people want scenarios to be in there they're the cherry on top of the cake at the end of your rule book so that people can see that there's longevity and there's there's all you've even when you have played out the core system version of the game until it's it's wrung out dry there's the this this extra taster menu of funness that that you can you can get into but but do mike do scenarios really get played in real life by real players very much do you think well so i have two i have two points of evidence here one is when i play do i play scenarios and the answer is frankly i mostly play games with i mostly play games with procedural victory conditions because that's what i like and that's because that's the way that i want to play but the other data point is gaslands and people tell me with no uncertain in no uncertain terms that they pretty much either just play like 90% death race or they play like 90% uh, arena of death, arena of depending, death. On their, depending on their proclivity. And I think that where games have a bunch of scenarios which I haven't played, they tend to be games that I've played a few times and each time I play, I start with what I, what I am being signposted is the basic scenario. And if I don't feel like I've necessarily nailed that, then when I play it with a new player, then we'll play the basic scenario again. And then when I play it with a new player, we'll play the basic scenario again. And so I'll have played a game six times, but I'll have just played the basic scenario each time because I haven't, haven't got past that first course yet to get to the mm. whatever the delights are below. You know, potentially, even if it says roll the D6 and choose the scenario. And that's certainly how I was introduced to Warhammer. I played meeting engagement. 15 times before I was even introduced the idea that there were other scenarios than meeting engagement. I think that's why I'm drawn to procedural objective systems, because I kind of want the game to slap me about the face and go, here, here's something different. There is no standard play mode. That isn't even a thing that can exist um, Hmm. in the game system. I mean, I, my suspicion is that you'll get two very, very different schools of thought, because I think that, there are the there are the home gamers who play the same relatively small pool of people around each other's houses and i think you'll find that those guys are like no i basically only play scenarios there are three of us each of us have one army if we don't play scenarios we we wouldn't play anymore because we need extra flavor to it and then there are the people who play pickup games primarily and in pickup games, you play the basic scenario. In in a pickup game of fantasy battle, you would play meeting engagement. And it's I think it's kind of like it's like asking someone out on a date going and playing a pickup game at a club, you know? And you find somebody and you find out you're playing the same system. So you're both looking for a game and you sit up at the game across the table from the stranger. And then if you have to present to them that you want to play this one of the the funny little kinky scenarios it's kind of like going on a date (laughs) and sitting down to the dinner and going by the way after dinner this is what we're doing you know you you it's it's hard to say to a total stranger i want to play that scenario they do their first no but i think that cuts back to the the trust relationship which is the Mm -hmm. one that's the basic one like we all know how that works and it doesn't require me to understand a different sort of 
interaction of rules and I don't have to sort of know how that scenario plays versus the other ones. So the most polite thing is just, you know, just to order order the normal food, not to go like, shall we share a towering cascade of seafood? Like just mm. to do the normal thing so that we can both just enjoy the kind of vanilla experience of sharing that game system together. I've gone to clubs where the same people have gone to the same club week in and week out for literal decades. And they still play the basic pickup game of but, so, but that that, that might just that might just be a strength of the game. Like I have never I mean I'm not I, I'm not certain I've played this game to death, but like I have never wanted or asked X Wing for a scenario. Like when I put some little starfighters down on the table, like I am more than happy to shoot those starfighters out of the sky and swirl around until we're dead. And it like I know, I have multiple scenarios. I have them from the expansions that I bought, but like it's yeah. never occurred to me to play them. Like that game is yes. sort of it's sort of delightful and crystalline in its in its in its original sort of incarnation. Yeah, but the, I mean, but the question we're asking here is why haven't you ever thought to play any of those scenarios? You've got a stack of scenarios. You've got a scenario for for Han Solo doing something sexy, right? Because, be because, Solo, be because every time I've played that game, I have exited that game going, oh, brilliant, I want to play that game again. I, it's not that I, I like some elements of that and I want to take some of those elements and transpose them onto something else. It's like, that is the play experience that I want. That dogfighting experience is exactly the play experience I want. Which is interesting because potentially like playing Malifaux, for example, like if I generated the perfect scheme and scenario selection, I'd be like, wow, that was the scenario pool. That was the scenario with the scheme pool that I, I for, forevermore, I'm going to play Reckoning with these five scenario schemes or whatever. But, 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 the, but the game system doesn't throw that at you. It says, here's, no. a, here's a dice roll. But the, I guess the thing is, is it, is it odd that you play X-Wing, you really enjoy X-Wing, and the people who put together this thing that you really enjoy and you trust them and you think they're smart people and smart game designers have gone, hey, you bought the expansion. Here's this extra special scenario that not everyone gets. And we put real work into it, real effort into it. And you trust them and you think they're clever and you think they write like good games. And you played the basic form of X-Wing 15 odd times and you never went, hey, the shiny sweetie that they gave me in my special expansion that they were very proud of and they thought I should take a look at and they put in extra tokens to let me play it. Maybe I'll give, maybe just once, maybe just once out of the dozens of times I'm playing this game, maybe I'll acknowledge the work and the effort and the thought they put in and just pan through it one single solitary time to see if it's any good. Why? Why would you not? And this I, is I the question we're asking here. Why don't people do that? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I know why in that situation. And I think it's just because, you know, like in that same box of tricks that they gave me with that scenario, there were new cards and new ships. And like that was enough. Like I was discovering, I was discovering the interaction of the, of the units more enjoyable than the, the victory conditions. Like the victory condition in that game was so clear it was just who who kills the most i know but then at the same time i know that you played the same three ships about 20 odd times with so you weren't rediscovering that same combination of ships every single time i know it's bizarre isn't it it's bizarre i did yeah and this is this is genuine the, the 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 question we're trying to get to here is why why do people fall back on that default and 
the, the the irony here is, I think, to a degree, is you're saying the reason I didn't play their extra shiny jolliness is what they were too good for me to want to play it. Presumably, the no, no, the, 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 core, the core game the core game experience was satisfying enough. I didn't yeah. require anything. So, if the core so, game experience was worse, I would have been asking for more. Is is that not a weird sort of where it's like okay, if their core game experience was worse, I would have dug down into the the, the to see the extra layers they to put give in. Them money to try and find yeah. the game experiences. Yeah, is that is that the situation? Is that, well, that but that, that that but that's a that's a product versus game question. Like in what I do, and I'm sure what you do as well. Like perfection for me is like two A4 pages which deliver like chess-like depth forever. And in like 3000 years, people will still be playing my like miniature game about minotaurs because of how good the rules are. Um, but it doesn't need any more scenarios because it's just, it's just, it's just a piece of crystalline perfection. And I think that to, to a degree, like where the joy of constantly buying new expansions, which contain narrative scenarios and contain new bits and bobs, like that's because it's a it's an enjoyment of a product it's an enjoyment of product not an enjoyment of game it's when i got warhammer fantasy battle in you know in 2000 and in uh, in 1997 or whatever 1996 like the whatever the bretonian lizard men was like i probably could have been playing that for another 15 years like it wasn't in any fundamental way broken but there was a product release schedule that meant that i wanted to continue to enjoy things and i think that that's the difference between why people might demand more scenarios versus need them so i mean why do you write at least six scenarios in your books then if you don't think that people play them or kind of don't want people to want to play them well with gaslands i genuinely felt like there were reasons to drive the cars around that weren't racing and i think i provided a non-obvious first core scenario and because racing wasn't obvious, I kind of needed to provide the, the obvious one. And then I was in a state of multiplicity where I could get away with, with offering more scenarios. And I still don't know whether people really genuinely play them. Like, you know, you and I tend to mostly play Death Breaks whenever we play. Mm. Um, whereas with Mystic Skies from Blaster, I just wrote one scenario because i wanted to nail that play experience and i didn't really care i know there are other ways of playing mystic skies there are other exciting ways of racing wizards around but that play experience as it currently exists is exactly the one i want and i don't need to write another i don't need to write a second scenario for it um i mean so i think i think i think gaslands to a degree it was pandering to the audience and like the product demanded that it have a breadth to it so that when people come in they find what it is that they want and if they're happy with the racing thing there's the racing thing but if they were really looking for mad maxian things then there's a couple of ways for them to get into that and it's like it's it's, a, it's an accessibility question in that in gaslander's case i think that the thing is i play scenarios a lot uh, you know i mm. i do try and play scenarios at pickup games and and people do you know do do accept it and i i do that because to to me i my attitude is that if i like something i want to see what else the person has done i want i assume that if they if they write things that i enjoy 
then I'm going to enjoy the other things they wrote. And the idea of like eating the first course, go, oh my God, this is the most amazing first course ever. Do you want the, uh, the main course? I think I'll just re-eat the first course, please, if you don't mind, for, for the next You might be years. disappointed. You might be disappointed. This is a much safer bet. Yeah, no, but yeah, but equally, the person's I like... I love A, oh, but I like B. Well, I don't know. Let's just have more A. Can, can, <laughs> can I can I go back to having to, to reordering the first course if I don't like the main course? Oh, no, no. It's a one-way trip. Once you've tasted the main course, we burn all the first courses in existence, and you will never be able to taste this again. It, do, it doesn't work that way. You can go, okay, I'll play the first scenario. Oh, I, this is really cool. These people have written several other scenarios. I wonder if they're really cool. And you can go, oh, no they're like a horrible wet sponge of a playing experience i'll go back to the first one but it's one game out of the 50 or 60 games you're going to play with this system and maybe you play it and you go way oh i that these guys know what they're doing you know i personally i find it peculiar playing the same scenario over and over and over and over again and not taking one of those play sessions to go yeah let's look at what else they've done maybe they they know what they're doing and maybe i will enjoy the other things that they have done i it's funny because you keep keep making it personal i suppose you know we play a lot of arkham horror the card Hmm. game and i do trust them like i know i i look at the credits on the design of each of the scenarios and i recognize the names and i go you know what you're doing and i've had a good time with with you previously and i'm going to do it again but in that case like every game is deliberately a new scenario so there is no mm. default way of playing that game but at the same time like i'm i'm there's a trust relationship there with the designers whereas each adeptus titanicus book that comes out like bless their hearts like i don't know who works on those games like they're not properly credited and so i, I don't know or trust that the next scenario in the next book is going to be anything other than absolutely awful and i would much (laughs) rather just play the thing that i know works because it was designed by a chap that i trust over a course of you know nearly 12 months of intensive being locked in a room and so i suppose it's interesting that you're making it personal because in many regards the product release cycle that i was talking about like for a big company like games workshop eliminates the the personal trust relationship with the designer whereas you know for something which has more of like a one-to-one relationship where i know who the designer is there's that one person's yeah maybe i should be more open to their scenario design and their kind of well there's a game mode that i haven't explored yet it's like you talk about board games you talk about euro games people struggle to learn rules of there are euro games where the game itself is very complicated really crunchy and requires multiple levels of thinking and people are totally fine with that very complicated higher level brain function thinking but can't get through the rule book and it's not because the rule book's complicated it's because it's the wrong kind of thinking you know that they want from their play session Mm. and sometimes i think that the thinking that is required to play a scenario as opposed to the default setup game is a different kind of thinking from the kind of thinking that people want when they turn up to the table to play their game. They want to be challenged, 
but in a specific way and they want to you know have to think and consider things and have stuff throwing at them and adjust it on the fly but within a certain version of thinking and with a certain way of operating i think possibly i play a lot of scenarios because i people know me and know to trust me to deal with the scenario for them you know people know that that i'm a game designer to some degree and know that i will click the scenario quickly and they go we can play a scenario if you're around because you'll actually get the and scenario they know that they're already going to lose to glenn so they don't worry about that <laughs> because a non-competitive asymmetrical well, you, scenario well you know but pe- 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 i think but people feel like we won't have to do the that bit of thinking we know who's going to do that we know who at the table is going to do that bit of thinking. The guy over there wearing the hat that says, I do that for you. Hi, I'll deal with a scenario for you. Would you like to play a scenario? Well, if someone's going to deal with that kind of thinking for us, of course we'd like to play a scenario. We just don't want to have to operate our brains in those those two sections. That's my personal guess as to why people shy away from scenarios. Maybe... More, more than they should, but I think people. Well, I mean, and I suppose, and I suppose, my, my my viewpoint, my guess would be, most many people don't get to play the games that they want to play as much as they would like to play in the first place, and so mm. were they allowed to play the games that they wanted to play as much as they would like to play, they might get to the point where they are bored of the first scenario and want to play the second scenario. Um, All right, but certainly. His- I both don't have enough time and am, you know, constantly distracted by other games. So that, like, I'm happy to play the core scenario three times and then move on to the next game and, and explore a different play experience because of a new system rather than because of a new scenario. Okay, so my my, my position is don't play the other scenario when you're bored of see the other scenario as the game with extra special sauce on and go well if i'm only going to play the game once do i want to play the vanilla beige version or do i want to play the special source version if you're only taking one shot at it go for the special source version go for the one with all the bells and whistles and then oh you'll get all the experiences rather than i'm getting one shot of this so what i want is beige please thank you lovely i really got that at its minimum i did i didn't How, turn it up it to 11 to once. like like why can't it be like the exquisite crystalline like that was how it was designed like every element of the design is pointing at that scenario that play mode like every piece of the puzzle points to that and if you try and play a scenario like it works but it's not like nah. because if they were because they wouldn't have put those scenarios in there if they oh, come designed on. this crystalline we've both put slightly wonky scenarios in games before that we haven't play tested as much as the main scenario we <laughs> you put things in, you put things in that you haven't play tested but they've been play tested by by people who do those things for you <laughs> <laughs> right and on that bombshell on that bombshell been... Uh, where have you found this there will be a comment section please let us know what you think about this rambling ranty uh, and largely random video um, and what you'd like us to to bibble on about in the future if you're on the podcast please check out our faces on youtube reach out to us on twitter or any other social media that we happen to be on but until the next time it's goodbye for now bye bye